Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features Michelle Carl. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from taboo authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. To SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. And in doing so, I also want to acknowledge that these are unceded lands, stolen lands, that there has never been a treaty made with Australia's First Nations. Michelle Carl is a poet, author and essayist. Her short story collection, Letters to Pessoa, won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for New Writing, and Michelle has been nominated. She has a slew of other awards and nominations. She's pretty good. <laughs> now, Michelle is joining me today with her new novel, Daisy and Wolf. In 1924, Daisy Simmons works to arrange passage from Calcutta to London. She will leave her family, her life, to be reunited with her lover, Peter Walsh. But at what cost? In 2017, Mina is trying to write a novel. In it, she will restore agency and voice to Daisy, a woman who was never even given a voice in Virginia Woolf's seminal novel, Mrs. Dalloway. As Mina works to free Daisy from her fictional invisibility, she must also reconcile herself to the bonds of career, family and duty and make peace with the responsibility of a writer bringing life onto the page. This is a fantastic one. You might have noticed in your podcast app that this is a little bit longer than our usual episode. That is because Michelle and I had just an incredible conversation about writerly stuff and literature and what it means to engage with the canon. I really invite you to take your time and enjoy this one and join me as we discover Michelle Carl's Daisy and Wolf. Michelle, look, it is so exciting to have you here. There is so much we've got to chat about. Thank you, Andrew. It's so nice to be here. I'm on um, um, Gurungai country and I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging and this was land never ceded and um, I stand with all Aboriginal people. Um, so it's wonderful to be here with you today to talk about Daisy and Wolf, Andrew. Thank you. And this is such an incredible novel. I confessed off air that there are so many threads that I want to pull on, but I'd like to give a sense of this incredible novel and take us to 1924. Daisy Simmons is working to arrange passage from Calcutta to London. She will leave her family, her life, to be reunited with her lover, Peter Walsh. In 2017, Mina is trying to write a novel she will restore agency and voice to Daisy, a woman who was never even given a voice in Virginia Woolf's seminal novel, Mrs. Dalloway. And as Mina works to free Daisy from her fictional invisibility, she must also reconcile herself to the bonds of career, of family, the duties that they place on her to make peace with the responsibility of a writer bringing life onto the page. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface with that, Michelle, but can I begin on your website? You describe um, your work speaks to how racism divides the fabric of kinship, separating us from home and erasing us from history and from archives. And of the threads that I wanted to explore in Daisy and Wolf, I thought this could be a good place to start. And I wondered, did Daisy Simmons draw you into her orbit or is she 
merely one of the many narratives that are given short shrift in the what I might kind of call in scare quotes the canon of English literature? I think she is um, one of many characters who are minoritized and put on the periphery of um, white narratives which are mainstream and which 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 you know perpetuate the, this domination of um, the white fantasy of um, existence and culture and superiority. Um, uh, however, of course, Daisy was um, particularly um, once I realised that Daisy was Anglo-Indian, that she was Eurasian, I was immediately drawn to her because I felt that I had not noticed that in my earlier readings of Mrs. Dalloway when I was younger. And, um, and, and I think that's partly because of the way that Wolf writes in such a layered kind of way and such a um, sort of a pointillistic way in a way where she's moving the, the perspective from one character to another and it's actually sometimes difficult to follow what's actually happening. One gets, one's almost kind of getting carried and bounced along the language itself. And, um, and so I missed Daisy and I missed realising that Peter Walsh was also Anglo-Indian um, and that was really interesting when I came across that and I was at the time doing a doctorate of creative writing. I was looking for a project. Mm. I had been kind of um, for many years trying to find that narrative about how does one speak about mixed ancestry because I'm myself a mixed ancestry um, and how does that story get told within powerful nationalisms which are competing, such as Indian nationalism, Australian nationalism, how does that mixed ancestry um, uh, kind of um, emerge and also under the umbrella of um, Commonwealth literature or what have you and where, how, does, how does England, where I spent some, some of my childhood, how does that fit into the picture? And, and um, it was for a long time I've been trying to kind of to, to find ways of speaking this and it's not easy because of many reasons why it's not easy. So once I found that Daisy, it was almost like this is this is the character, this is what I've been kind of waiting to find and here's my project, here's my task, my creative task. I've also done a lot of work on metafiction and on, I would say you would describe them as paratexts how other forms of texts, textual writing can um, overwrite and, um, fictions and how that phenomenon creates canons and how that creates um, uh, spaces that dominate and, 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 and creates um, people who are on, on the margins. Um, the paratexts uh, are things which can come about through publishing. Paratexts can also be diaries, um, such as Wolf's diaries or such as Mina's diaries in the book. The paratexts are types of writing. It could be social media, for example. They could be Instagram stories or they could be Twitter tweets. Paratexts are kind of the um, other ways in which narratives can be told and stories can be told from the official version. And so this inter... In, this sort of uh, 
this kind of um, bringing together of the paratext and the main story is a way that you can um, uh, you, you, you can resist the dominance of the white ethnically pure narrative, which predominates within Western the Western canon, and I think within Asian canons there are equally also ethnically pure um, uh, stories as in as in any country there's it's very difficult to to speak about those minority people and and the more minoritized they are the less they are visible in history in archives in research in law law itself is a sort of a story so this is what's fascinating and you have things like citizenship coming into law and I think that's kind of touched upon a little bit in Daisy's search for, you know, the when she approaches and tries to get a passport and has to leave Calcutta and those kinds of things are sort of touched upon in, in a fictional way. Mm. So I think I think one thing that I took from some of the examples there that you gave, especially um, in uh, we're exemplifying paratexts, very much speaks to the idea that the the view of the world you take really depends on where you uh, direct your attention, particularly, I guess, in this modern age when we you, you mentioned things like social media existing as a paratext. And we know that, you know, there's, there's more media out there. There are more of these stories than any one person can <laughs> truly fathom. So you can, you can create your own existence by paying attention in a certain direction. And, it was very different. I guess. Social media was not around for Virginia Woolf, although there were various types of media. But before we get very much into how you do this, I wanted to ask a little bit about that relationship. What does it mean to be in conversation with another work and specifically here in conversation with Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway? What does it mean to you? Sorry, maybe rather than the, the larger. What does it mean, <laughs> mean universally? Yes. I think there's, on one level, I think as a writer, you're also a reader. You read so many works that inspire you. And, of course, Wolf has been one of the inspirational authors for me because I love the way she uses language in such a powerful way um, to challenge the patriarchy and um, and and also to challenge um, the official the official kind of register and the law and things like that, and even empire as well. She does that um, in t- in terms of her tone, and and so I've always admired that. So I guess you know the, that when you it's it's a bit like it's a bit like you're in a fandom. You know you 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 really admire this writer, and so you become as a reader, you become drawn to their works and involved in their works and uh, it becomes almost part of your own consciousness in a way. And in some ways I think in terms of our imagination, our our imaginations are shared to some extent um, and I think that we all, we all read books from the past and we what, in, what actually structures our the way that we think about storytelling comes from what we've read in the past and um, also our own stories. But there's that, that connection and that thread that continues and is, is 
um, is ongoing and, and I think in some ways it's um, like kind of collective history in a way, our collective imagination and this repository of, of stories that we can, we can share. So I think um, for me um, writing in this kind of way is, is, is a sharing. Um, it's a collaborative project where you're not just in isolation. You're not just the sole source of, of the sole origin of something, but you're actually um, in a dialogue, in a conversation. And to some extent it allows you to engage in an argument about things that might be important, such as uh, an argument about cultural domination, colonialism, power, gender, um, and so on. Um, and um, uh, and so I, I think that's kind of what I wanted. I got to a point where of realising in writing the story that um, uh, in, in many ways I was walking, I was walking with Wolf and I was seeing myself ultimately as, as an equal, you know, I, I didn't have to say, I didn't have to be shy about it anymore and say, Oh no, you know, she's the historian of Western feminism and how can I kind of um, try to challenge that story or it, it didn't have to be combative in that way. It was more, let's have a discussion about these things and let's, you know, let's have a sharing and let's, let's tease out these ideas. And, and I found that there were also a lot of points in common that I had with her threads, things about her story and my story. And, and I guess, um, although we, although she has an extremely different style to mine, um, style of writing, I think, um, I came to see myself, if I can say as an equal, and that was empowering for me. As a brown woman, that was very empowering. As a brown woman who's read a lot of Wolf and who's attended courses, and you know, you look up to particular authors. Um, so I guess that's what it means to be in conversation in this way, in, in this kind of meta metafiction, as it's called. Or, or it strikes me in in what you're saying there, there is a, a difficult juxtaposition in this idea of the the shared experience um, of of literature that we we look back to that maybe builds um, builds a reverence builds uh, an authority as a canon um, in precisely what you you were just talking about that if if you can imagine yourself into it then there is enormous possibility but of course if you if you can't imagine yourself into it if you're absent from it then maybe it can be quite limiting is there something of that in Daisy and Wolf that Daisy as a marginal character in Mrs. Dalloway, in bringing her to the fore, you are expanding possibility? I hope so. I hope I'm expanding that possibility. And I was also aware that, um, uh, for example, I'll just speak a bit more about that. I, I, I was a, I'm expanding possibility in the sense of having um, a, an Anglo-Indian character is a powerful thing and I'm so excited to, that I read a review that talks about that today in um, the Herald and that was so exciting for me because only 4% of Australian Indians are Anglo-Indians and yet it's interesting, a lot of those, there's actually quite a few 
um, Anglo-Indian authors in Australia. So um, um, uh, I, I, I'm thinking of people like Christopher Raja and um, Bamla Hunt and um, some other writers. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, um, allowing um, the reader to see what is Daisy's home like, what are her family like, what does she eat, what does she, what clothes does she wear, how does she think, um, that in itself is a major, if I can say for me, it felt like a major achievement to, to bring that into the story and even more so to have her as part of the title and to have her photograph on the cover of the book so that you see an an Indian woman, a dark-skinned woman who isn't wearing a sari but is dressed in Western clothing and has um, a 1920s hairstyle, a more Western hairstyle, a European hairstyle, and that challenges the, the dominance of, of some some types of um, 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 construction of Indian nationalism as well. So that, that um, I think that, is exciting that people, readers and publishers have been open to it and seen a space that needs to be open for this. And, and um, that's, I think that's very promising for me. I'd like to address a question that I think many readers or potential readers will have, if not at the, at the front of their, um, their consciousness, maybe just kind of niggling in the back. Now, I began Daisy and Wolf with some sense of Virginia Woolf. You know, I'd, I'd studied her at uni. I knew about her impact on modernism. I read and probably didn't understand to the lighthouse. Um, but I hadn't <laughs> read Mrs. Dalloway. And as I read, I got to page 23 where we first encountered Daisy in her letter to Peter. And I got a little bit worried. And I, so I dug out my copy of Mrs. Dalloway and I started reading. And straight away, I grew concerned for Daisy because now I, I knew... I'd heard, I heard Clarissa, so I heard Clarissa Dalloway, Mrs. Dalloway, describe Peter as a dry correspondent. And I immediately thought, what is poor Daisy? Daisy is, is hanging on this man and he is apparently just a terrible letter writer. And I, I knew something else about the story you were telling that wasn't, you know, directly in front of me on the page. And it started to expand your world as well as the, the, the world of Daisy, the world you were creating. And what I want, what I want to ask you, um, and you don't have to answer, but was I right in doing this, or would you prefer your readers? Would you prefer your readers to have read Mrs. Dalloway, or it doesn't matter? I, <laughs> oh, that's that's a nice story. I like that you did that, and um, and I wasn't aware that Peter was a dry correspondent. Mm. <laughs> so, there's so much language in Mrs. Dalloway, right? So, um, uh. I think that perhaps my Peter is different. There were things that I wanted to also highlight that Virginia Woolf in some ways um, negatively stereotypes Peter Walsh as an Anglo-Indian. So part of what I'm doing is, like I noticed in the language of the way that she describes both Daisy and Peter, it's kind of reductive, you know. He's He seemed to be um, a, a man who who's preoccupied with his, with his pen knife and he's... Um, He's like got these obsessive kind of traits about him, and he's bothersome, and he's over emotional, and so forth. Um, and and 
she's so she 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 presents this picture of him and I and also Daisy is presented in a way where she's described as vain and she's described as in some ways the suggestion is that she is a little morally loose mm-hmm. um, a little bit of a flirtatious sort of woman um, and when you actually um, look at the way that Anglo-Indian and Eurasian people were depicted in uh, 19th century novels and also earlier novels and um, stories and all different types of, you know, journalism and so forth, they were often very negatively stereotyped with those kinds of qualities where they were seen as sometimes as um, uh, intellectually um, retarded or um, disabled in that way or that they might have been seen as promiscuous and so forth. And this was a very, very common narrative stereotype. And I think that Wolf, perhaps Virginia Wolf, perhaps it was a conscious thing, perhaps it wasn't, but she's kind of relying on those stereotypes. So I wanted my Peter to be a little bit different in some ways. And I think that it's it, the, um, it's it's great if readers can read both books at the same time, or if they choose to just dive into my novel and go, and just not not be concerned about what Virginia Woolf novel you know what that looks like what the picture it gives is um or if they choose to to do what you do did which is to cross-reference I think that's also that's just fine and and it's I think it's exciting for me to hear that (laughs) like I can recommend um my my edition I'm just gonna this is this is great radio we're making right now because I am going to show Michelle my edition which has kind of got a lovely strange I could almost see Phoebe Waller-Bridge playing gorgeous. playing this oh, as yeah. Clarissa Dalloway really gorgeous but um this uh yes. this this Grafton um edition Beautiful. Uh, the page numbers just do not correspond so uh <laughs> yeah that made it a bit trickier <laughs> I was really. <laughs> I think I was relying on on um, my original copy as well. I had I had two copies, one of which was falling apart. <laughs> that is that is incredible just to, to see that that intertextuality play through. It also struck me there's there's a really interesting power dynamic that is at play in my reading of Peter and your reading of Peter because of course in imagining Peter you are able to flesh him out more. Whereas uh, say a reader of Mrs Dalloway is getting um, they're, they're getting Clarissa's views and understandings and Peter Peter does put himself at a disadvantage in. Uh, a strange disadvantage in terms of their power dynamic. He confesses his love. He reiterates his love. He allows, I guess he allows Clarissa to feel this sort of superiority over him. And perhaps that, that colors her view, um, which again, very much reframes the, both the gendered power and also um, the power across, uh, I guess, racial, um, racial stereotypes that they might have of each other, um, yeah, that that was something that had just occurred to me. The way Peter centers his his loves really does put him in a unique position, I guess, both for for the time and for our our reading of him. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, I hadn't considered that, but um, I hadn't considered that he makes himself so vulnerable in that way. Um, and that's a really interesting perspective of uh, probably a male perspective as a reader that. That um, 
I can see um, now, now that you mention it. Um, yeah, I, I think um, it's interesting as well that Peter, when he thinks, when he discusses India and describes India in Mrs. Dalloway, it's quite derogatory. And that every time I read anything, I'm thinking as a reader, now is this Peter or is this Virginia Woolf? Who's speaking here? And and why so derogatory? For example, when he talks about when when he pursues the woman in the in 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 um, the streets of London, he pursues a woman. He and he he's describing how it's wonderful to see women after the not so attractive women in India. He says something like that. I I think from I recall, but also other things that quite derogatory things that he says about India. It's quite, um, you know, he, he sort of, he, he alludes to um, a, a common sort of complaint that the ruling class would have had, you know, this sense of this picture of India as being disorganised, um, unruly, you know, which is kind of feeding into common fears at the time about, about kind of rebellion in the colonies and, you know, the independence movement rising and all, all of the, the fears of, of losing, you know, this, this important colony that, that, you know, Britain had. And I think the, one of the main things about Mrs. Dalloway for me is although, although it, you know, it seems intimate in a way, this intimate story about this, this one day in a woman's life and so much is left out of that time, mind you, by the critics and by Wolf. Um, uh, it's, it's almost as if to make it really interesting, India has to be there. Mm. You know, to make, to make Britain the power that it was, it needed these colonies, this richness, this exotic, exotic beauty, Beauty and charm and interest and intrigue and this um, and this this wealth that it was also exploiting. Um, this is what the empire was built on, mm. and it's interesting how it's on the periphery, but it's almost an essential part of the story. So I wanted to make it central. I wanted to to bring to really kind of have this argument with well, what? How does Wolf not just see Daisy and Peter, but what about India? What's what's going on for Wolf there? I'd like to keep um, keep going, looking at this the, the, this perception and the way that I guess the way that Mina. So we we really we've given short shrift to Mina at the moment, um, but she is she is discovering and searching for this story of Daisy, and as she searches the text of Mrs. Dalloway, and she also searches the world of Mrs. Dalloway. She travels. Well, the, she t- searches the world of Virginia Woolf. She travels around the world looking into this story. She, uh, it's, Well, it struck me she was hampered or was always coming up against a, a kind of coded, whether it's racism or an indifference in the text to non-white characters. Here's Mina kind of trying to interpret descriptions of Lucrezia, who is an Italian character. We, I won't go too far into the backstory here, but other than to say Mina's um, seeing her in Mrs. Dalloway as foreign and dark in that casual way that the upper class allude to difference. 
Now she could all she could be easily talking about Daisy here as well. Um, at one point in Daisy and Wolf, Peter describes Daisy as a rare bird. There's this there's this othering. It's it's kind of um, I guess some people some some of the characters might describe it as not unflattering, but it is certainly uh, othering and marginalising. I wondered. In the writing, in her searching, is Mina seeking to res- just to restore these characters to the narrative, to give them more voice, more agency? Or is she also seeking a kind of justice for these women? Mm-hmm. That's such a hard question, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that it is for me to answer that question because... I think um, I'm, as the author, I'm not sure that I can speak to what the intentions of the character are, if that makes sense. Um, But I can observe about it and I think that she's, I think think it's so, so implicated her own experience of racism and of kind of walking through the corridors of 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 empire and um always kind of it's always being um as a brown woman doubly colonized by gender and race and also as an immigrant so that also is is another transition that she has to navigate which is bumpy um all of these things uh can come can be can be thrown and into her face can be can be doors that are closing on her at, at important points or at moments when she's navigating the journey of her life or the direction that the path that she's trying to create um which is this story and this the pursuit of this story um so she, in in many ways they're part of the story and I think perhaps for Mina, it's hard to say how much of these aspects are part of the story and how much she's kind of becoming the story, how much she's becoming what she's trying to pursue, you know, what she's, is she, you know, she's not, she's not Daisy, but she's, she's not Virginia Woolf, she's not Daisy, but these are these it's it the, the three of them are kind of and the four of them there's also um lucrezia as you say rezia so these characters are kind of um moving in and out of each other in a way but especially i think probably nina and and um and daisy and wolf there's a movement she's moving in and out of these characters worlds and it's starting to impact on her life and I think maybe that this 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 happens, you know, with because creative creative energy is so powerful. It's it's kind of there are many levels of it, and she's in a very precarious state. You know, she's there's a sense of family pressures and financial pressures and fatigue, and also sexual assault when she's in London. And so she's quite precarious and uh, her life is, is unravelling and, um, and I think that that also heightens the creative 
the creative energy around her when when you when you uh, have all those other pressures as well as the, the pressure to create um it's quite a powerful thing it was it was incredible to travel alongside and i i, I actually i really want to choose my descriptor carefully there because there are some absolutely harrowing moments of of mina's journey so i don't want to i don't want to be too excited about the idea that um I, i'm simply a, a spectator in all this but to watch her consider her process and each moment that she she goes through to almost put that through the lens of, of her writing and ask herself, how can she speak to this or can she speak authentically to this or is this something that she can ever know to put into Daisy's voice and then to consider how then she might realise Daisy's voice. Are we, you know, is our letters enough? How will she speak? What In what person will she speak? Just like, sorry, just as a book guy, that's that's amazing. And that's incredible that you've put this in to Daisy and Wolf in such an engaging way as we travel alongside Mina and then Daisy in alternating moments. Um, take that as a, take that as a comment rather than a question, but I, I, I just didn't want to let the moment pass that you, you took us so much into that process and brought it alive. Thanks. Thank you. I'm glad that it came alive and it comes alive. Um, it, um, yeah, it's some um, interesting how that falls into place. Um, it's not always, I feel like the writing is not always um, intentional, you know. There are, there are many things that lay the writing and, um, you know, one's research, reading, um, shifts in perspective as one does the um, structural edits and works with editors in the publishing process and all of those kinds of things kind of um, come to bear on how it, how it, how that that story um, intensifies and becomes complex, I think. <laughs> I, I think, though, in bringing this process forward, you, you really you engage in a lot of topics that I, I, I think as readers we are and should be considering. Um, one of the things, so Mina, Mina is exploring how she is going to bring Daisy's story to the page. She is traveling the world in search of parts of this story to understand it. And at a certain point, she has to consider where is Daisy going? How is this story unfolding? And she says, a writer has to die a certain death for what kind of person dwells in infinite possibility. Um, I mean, look, I would absolutely say there is there are probably whole chat rooms on the internet where people are dwelling in infinite possibility of their favorite characters. But of course, for a book to exist <laughs> for a book to exist in our hand, we do. We need the writer to die a certain death for them to make that choice and say that this is the choice that will move the story forward here. I, I wondered how you had confronted this challenge. Like what can you tell us about that process? Mm, I can say that it sometimes feels like there are many deaths, you know, that, um, um, you know, firstly, I suppose from the point of view of the exhaustion of the writing process, it's physically exhausting. It's, it's physic- physically painful. One can suffer from, um, headaches like Virginia Woolf did or, um, 
you can have, um, I, I often experience neck pain or leg pain. I write when I'm standing a lot. So I find if I've been working for a uh, many hours, my legs go to jelly and they're just sore and it can actually be sore to walk. So the physical the physical um, uh, pain and then just there's often, you know, there's the pain of postponement. You're postponing so many things in your life and sometimes that's just exercise as well. And that in itself is painful and, and, and so you often feel this overwhelming exhaustion and I can remember quite a few times just so tired and thinking, oh, well, that's it, I've done it now, and then it wasn't to be. And that, to me, it felt like a death, and then it wasn't to be. There was, a, you know, there was more structural editing and more more to sort of um, to, to look at and, and, and uh, finesse, and I, I had amazing support from the editors. Um, uh, the, on death, you know, how does one um, make those choices? And I, I, I think... I'll answer you by saying um, I'll speak honestly and I'll say that often for me the pleasure of writing is the point that comes when you're not as in you're 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 not so much at the in the engine room you know you're not you're not it's almost as if the writing takes over mm. it's almost as if you, you know, you take that risk, you trust the process, but in order to trust that process, you've spent many years upskilling, um, uh, often false starts, getting things wrong, you know, and making a lot of mistakes. Um, but you, you've, you've spent years. So, you know, it's, it's like, it's almost like you're doing your, your musical scales, you know, you, you've been practicing and practicing. So when it's time to actually sort of, let the narrative take over that's what you do you let the narrative take over and your role is reduced in a way and to me that's that's the greatest joy of writing those times it doesn't happen all the time because there's a lot of scaffolding that goes into the structure of a novel and then you take the scaffolding away so that's also work as well um but um there are times there were times in the writing of the novel when I was not as actively involved and the writing was just writing itself. Mm. And that's, that's the part about writing. I love the most because there's a truth about that. It's some unshakable truth. It's, I trust it. And I've worked, I've developed, I hope I've developed the skills for a long time to, I've invested, you know, in my, in my writing as opposed to, the career of it or anything like that. And I think that's what I think I love about writing. It isn't part of an industry, you know, as such, and yet it is work, but it, it, it's its its own, I think, think of it more as like a profession in a way, something that you that you love doing so you do it and you focus on it and you, you find out what your skills are and enhance your skills and work out what your weaknesses are and you work on those weaknesses. So in a way you're teaching yourself as you go and trusting, obviously there's a lot of trust involved in some ways I would say, uh, I'm not sure if I'm being too honest here, but <laughs> being too revelatory, whatever, but in some ways I would say that I've trusted my, my creative imaginary imagination and that part of my life mm -hmm. more than I've trusted other parts of my life. 
You sound so much more. At, you sound so much more at peace with this process than Mina is. And I want to. I want to just um, dig a little deeper in that sense that you you have the peace that I've heard you just describe there that Mina perhaps doesn't, and Mina in turn grapples with the way she is telling Daisy's story because we live we live in a world where there is so much cross identification between artists and their art. And it really grabbed me at one point, Mina, Mina speaks of herself, she confesses, she says, and I'm not going to talk about who she is referring to here because we, we're going to keep the story pure. <laughs> she says, psychically speaking, I am her assassin. And that just, that quote, that just destroyed me. I thought it is incredible to think of an artist seeing this very visceral process of happening to one of their characters. I also, I was on... Um, on a social media site the other day, I can't remember which, but um, I saw another a fantasy writer describe themselves as a serial killer in relation to <laughs> pr- presumably some readers are going to be pretty unhappy with this person's next book. Um, and there was, yeah, so there's this real identification between the artist and their art, that responsibility to the characters that they're creating. How should we view this responsibility? Should we be making this link too closely or should we allow artists to do things to their creations that are perhaps horrible, perhaps things that they might not even agree with? Mm, I, I'm in favour of, of, of artistic licence and um, and. and allowing writers to pursue the direction that they need to pursue all creators i think need that kind of freedom to to just experiment it's so important perhaps that's why we also why we love to create is for that sense of experimentation in our lives that it, it extends and expands from the other ways that we live our lives you know, where we are so straight-jacketed into what our identity is, what we do, how we do things, even time itself, time constrains us. And it's that sort of freedom that, that we have in the creative process that I think um, is is something that shouldn't be taken away from us. And um, maybe it can't be taken away from us. Who knows? You know, um, it's a wonderful thing to be able to dream and to 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 um to see where that takes one yes i'm all for that (laughs) let's talk let's talk then about the flip of that the flip of that license that ability to travel you know vast expanses on the page and i want to return to mina's own story uh we meet her she's left her life in australia uh to to write this book, she's living in London. She's per- particularly bereft at the separation from her son. Um, this parallels a similar arc in in Daisy's story that I, I won't say too much about. But I was actually hoping you could talk then about these feelings that Mina is is struggling with, feelings that I think also parallel the narrative in Mrs. Dalloway, that of um, the expectations that are placed on women, that they are going to be the ones who will sacrifice, that they are going to be the ones who will stand back so that men can stand forward and the costs that they that they have to i guess pay for not conforming to these absolutely i think that the cost is enormous um and i think the vulnerability of particularly brown women 
because it's, I think, anyone who pursues an artistic life, you are in this culture, in this particularly as we become so much more um, capitalized, you know, cap- capitalism and and um, and neo-fascism that's happening politically in the world at the moment. Um, we're in difficult times for sure, and I think that it's this the 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 art the, the life the artist's life is is a precarious one, and and then if you're a woman, it's 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 hard to take that path and to then answer to the demands of family, society, um, spouses, children, and. Um, I think it makes you incredibly vulnerable. And if you happen to be a brown woman, you know, different things can also turn against you. And um, <clears throat> it's it's very easy to be um, scapegoated. That's what that's what can happen. And it's it's also the fact that society just has a misunderstanding about what the artist does, what the writer does, and why why the writer is apparently wasting so much time in their life or you know mulling over over unproductive things and everything is monetized you know writing can't it readily be monetized so um it, it definitely makes um a brown woman incredibly vulnerable and there are uh, there is a cost to pay for sure um I wanted to make some of the things we've been talking about real for people because they are real. These are not, not just abstract ideas. Um, I, I want I wanted to give people a glimpse into some of the very real pressures that happen um, and play out, and and also to make to to call out the publishing industry and. And, um, and and the cultural industries that support that publishing industry and um, but also the institutions that teach literature, universities, um, the academy and so forth and also affiliated organisations and also um, uh, newspapers, critics, because they have an enormous role to play. Criticism and literary, and literary criticism has an enormous role to play in how it receives particular particular works, books and stories and how, um, uh, you know, what I wanted to, to, make, to make real is that, you know, that it might seem a simple thing to write a reductive review of someone's work but perhaps critics should be accountable for these things because these are actually having very real effects on writers and not just writers, on their families, on their lives. Um, and uh, I, I don't think when one think, we think about that enough. I think that the, the role of the critic is somehow um, kind of free of those kinds of considerations. Ethical considerations have not really been kind of um, the role of criticism has not been considered in terms of ethical considerations sufficiently. And I wanted that to, I wanted the average reader to get some, some sense of that and to, 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 I suppose in a way I wanted to, um, to, to, um, to show that from the insider's perspective, 
through the through the mind and the emotions and and the words of, of Mina. You're still living in a sort of a, a post Barts world where you know the text is orbiting somewhere in the atmosphere and the author is the author's all <laughs> all death over there and we don't have to think about them. The text is all. Um, I was I was really interested there. We we were talking about ideas of trauma and I, again I was quite interested in the way trauma plays out and there was a really interesting parallel between Mrs. Dalloway or as I saw sorry I should probably say um, (laughs) as I saw between uh, Mrs. Dalloway and Septimus and his story his trauma and the way that plays out and it becomes something of a focal point around which the other characters orbit Lucrezia is is sort of spends the the novel orbiting him um and and his behaviors but then even the 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 scene where um I is it it's a hundred year old novel but i f- i feel really strange about the idea that i might spoil it for anyone um, <laughs> the moment the moment where where septimus's fate is discovered and and clarissa sort of is there there is a sense that she is thinking well how how could he allow this or how could anyone allow this to overtake my party he's he very much kind of, in her mind, pulls mm. focus. Um, mm. And Mina, and Mina's trauma, um, or, or various traumas, but one in particular that I'm thinking about in Daisy and Wolf, feels like M- Mina has this pressure to deal with it differently. She feels she has to internalise it. She doesn't want it to allow, uh, allow it to escape into a public world and take up too much space. Um could you? I mean, if, were you were you conscious of of the, uh, I guess that um, reflection on different roles? We've talked a lot about uh, gender roles and roles um, that are played by by women, and then intersections um, between uh, whiteness and um, women of color, brown women. Were, were you were you I guess alive to that idea that Mina was very much. I guess she well she was doing what she felt she had to do to survive. That 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 was such a word soup. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, this is the problem when I write a paragraph and then don't somehow put a question on the end of it. So so to to talk about like the way that Nina's um just so on the edge. The way I guess the way I guess the way our stories become embodied um for Mm. mina 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 experiences this traumatic event but she internalizes it and it's not that that Mm. means it goes away the idea that the idea that it's not externalized either through actions or through words when we internalize it it's still a part of us and it plays out in our in our bodies in our behaviors um as opposed to i drew the parallel with septimus who very much externalizes um his trauma uh and i'm not i don't want to be casting any judgment on on septimus either on his trauma or what what happens but very much the way when when trauma is embodied the way it plays out and the way that can either pull focus or or force someone within themselves yeah there's there is a lot of trauma in the book in the novel um and i think there's for example i think you're right, Mina, Mina is pushing down her trauma, the death of her mother, 
the assault when she's assaulted, um, what's happening with her son, the loss of their relationship, the change in their relationship is is a major trauma for her. And um, she's still kind of just pushing a lot of these things down because she sees and she prioritises the responsibility of writing the novel. She prioritises the cultural responsibility to excavate this this part of this canonical work and, you know, to, 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 to bring Daisy out of the book and bring her to life and flesh her out and embody her. In order to do that, it's when there is um, so little sort of um, in terms of in the, in terms of there are the um, the foundations for minority narratives don't exist. Minority narratives have to rise out of the ashes. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, in that sense, the only way is something has to sacrifice, and that's I think I think Mina sees that that's there's no choice mm. that that's what she has to do she has to create this she has to be you would say across so many things mm. you know she has to be across uh, the history and the research um and she has to be across the travel so she can be to be in these places and experience them and get inside what would it be like for daisy to to make this journey she has to travel and and then in the in doing so there is um there is the loss of that dislocation and there is the postponement of time when she's not with her son, when she's not with her family, um, when she's not being a mother and she's not being a daughter. Mm. And those are, those are the kinds of the griefs that she carries with her, whereas da- Daisy's grief is the grief of the mother that's, that's going through the, the loss and the separation from her children, it's a different, um, she doesn't have the responsibility to, um, to, to, to bring about a whole character and a whole universe in a way, which is what a novel does in a way. A novel brings us into a world um, and, or, or it attempts to do that. It attempts to create a world, an inner world, an outer world and, I guess um, so. Yeah, I think maybe those maybe those two characters kind of bounce off each other, or there's some resonance there in the types of traumas that they experience. But there certainly is a lot of trauma, and I wanted to also I wanted the reader to consider readers to consider um, what is it like when you don't own your own story. You know, when when your story is being told about you, and there are times when. Mm, Daisy, um, you know, she mentions that she can't, if somebody asks her about her past, she doesn't feel like she can tell them what her past is because they'll always interpret it in a different way. Mm. So it's the power of interpretation, you know. When you, are, um, when, you're, when you are a minority or when what you're talking about is not um, something common in common experience so it's not just about being a minority it's about whether your experience is is if you're talking about something unusual whenever that happens people will will make judgments about you people will 
start to interpret your story so that, you know, the, the ability to tell a story is kind of overlaid by all of these things. It's like overlaid by history, complicated by history, by law, by cultural interpretation, cultural judgment, stereotypes. All of these things are kind of the obstacles um, as well as things such as the industry, the publishing industry, the media, all of these other things which are obvious kind of mediators of telling stories. But the less, the more subtle uh, mediators of telling stories are actually intimate mediators, the, the, the mediators within our personal lives, the way people judge us, um, the way they, 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 they don't listen to us, mm. the way they just don't listen to us. I think there's a part where Daisy says, you know, if I try to tell my story, people actually already are telling the story for me. They, they won't, when she's in France, when she's traveling in France and she's experiencing grief about her journey, she, um, she, she has this contemplation where she, she re- recognizes that she's unable to share that story with people because they were, they're already judging her. So I think these are some of the things that I wanted to you know, to kind of, well, I actually, they, they came into the story. They found their way. You could say they found their way into the story. It's mm. and they, they are also, it strikes me, just incredible things that as readers, it would serve us well to, to have in mind because it can feel like, I, I, I feel like it can feel like at times in our world that people want to believe in this sense that we all stand on a level platform and we all have equal opportunity to, to participate and to talk. And it's usually the people that have the largest platform that want to tell everyone else, well, you're equal with me without understanding these preconceptions, the colorings, the history, the, um, the fact that the platform isn't level. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. It's it is wonderful to espouse the idea that all stories are equal, but it's incredibly naive to when we start to even take a casual glance at the lived experience of people trying to tell their own stories. Yeah, absolutely. And you're so right about that with the platform, the bigger the platform. I think you see this, we see this in social media, don't we? Like it's, it's like, you know, it's like, um, you know, the, the size of the platform, the size of the message um, are, are sort of become one and the same thing where in actual fact it's not the case, you know. So um, what about those people who uh, don't have that platform? And, um, you know, it, it, it's also there are many things which which can't be spoken about, you know, and that these things are also like things like pushbacks. I think I referenced them a little. Mm. Um, um, we, I wanted, I, I maybe wanted readers to sort of get a sense of it. Um, yeah, how, how agency is constructed it's, it's, um, it's, I, I think things have changed so much in literature though. You know, I think there's some, so many positive things about the way that we discuss literature, it, such as even having this conversation, you know, the way that conversation is breaking down the authority of literature in a way, dialogues and podcasts and social media is, is, is very subversive. And, um, and I think, there's so much potential there for um, us to kind of um, to, 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 de- to decolonize 
to let me ask you then because I, I i was about to move us on to talking about your sydney writers festival appearance but you have you have um dragged me away from my absolute word soup of a non-question before and reminded me <laughs> that there was there was one other idea that i wanted to tease at because both in daisy and wolf and in mrs dalloway we see and hear the writers exchanging books and discussing books and um, contemporary uh, writers. And there is, I guess, also a sense that that literature, as we, we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, creates something of the world view. I wondered if you could talk, in, in your view at least, what role you see literature playing in constructing that colonial world, but also, as you just touched on, having a role in creating uh, a, a decolonial or a post-colonial world. Oh, enormous. It's, it's almost language is so powerful and, and literature has, plays an enormous role. It was actually part of the machinery of colonialism, you know, the education system that, of missionary schools in in all of the colonies and the, the types of novels that were often romanticizing and nostalgic and about some um, empire um, and, um, and, and, and this, this sort of moral mission of empire that justified colonial exploitation and financial exploitation of countries like India, all of this was um, enacted through education and through literature as well. So um, that's why it's so important for books to to kind of address this, and it's it's important for writers. I think it's some, um, you know, that I think that I think I think it can't be ignored. I mean, I wouldn't be saying what writers should do. That's far from my my views to say that because I think all writers have their own um, particular. Um, path to explore and you know that's the beauty of being a creator but um i just think that what you've just talked about is so important that that this is a literature is 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 in a very important part of cultural production that actually um enables domination and it enables racism to take place and i'm even i mean i'm 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 constantly reading Australian novels, for example, where there are racist um, elements which are sort of like subdued in a way and turned down or they're kind of implied or, you know, that you, one sees these and, and, you know, novels, all kinds, the way that the tone of, of language and um, the way that um, s- small reductions can, can take can be apparent in language. So I think that... Um, we can really be inducting attitudes towards people through stories we tell about them. Mm. And this brings up issues of appropriation and so forth. One of the biggest challenges for me was to think about how do I write Radhika's story in this novel? Mm. And I was really felt like I, I was really concerned about Radhika's, how, how was I to write that story and how can I step into her shoes and how, how is it... Um, I realise it's almost impossible to 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 not do a disservice in some way. If that makes sense, you know, when we when when we're telling these stories. So, 
Absolutely. And this is such this is such a live, I guess, debate that we've we've now entered into in the conversation where we need to acknowledge appropriation, but we also you know, we need to write widely and read widely. We need to acknowledge racism and we need to be able to, you know, we need to be able to stare it in the face in the art that we consume. But as you also say, it needs to be done, I guess, in a critical way. I don't think I don't think if we had an Australian literature that ignored the existence of racism, it would serve to address racism, but also it, it has to be done in a way that doesn't bolster it or tacitly approve of it. Um, and it's, I mean, I, I'm not going to ask you to give me an answer. I don't know that anyone has one answer, but the active engagement that we've, you've talked about that we're doing here, the active engagement and not pretending that uh, everything is fine is probably a starting place. Uh, yeah, I hope so. You know, I hope, I hope, I, I definitely, it is most definitely a starting place. And it's, I think, I feel it's, Daisy and Wolf is it's an, a huge achievement, really. Um, people say to me, oh, so what are you going to... I had a question that I have to write an answer for. What will you be doing next? And um, it, it's like, you know, I don't think people realise the obstacles. I feel like I was extremely fortunate to have Hachette take this story because I think um, I had... Um, a really good agent in London, and um, I uh, and it, it's not easy because there are so many industry um, barriers. Like, let's not forget as well the importance and the the power of Bloomsbury itself. Mm. You know, it's it's so many books have been written about Virginia Woolf, and I just want to say, if I can, in, when I touch on that that one of the things that struck me the most was that um, very few, if any, I didn't really read any criticism, any literary criticism that recognised that Daisy was a brown woman. The one long essay I read on India and Mrs Dalloway um, described Daisy as an English woman. So that in itself speaks to the way that, that racism operates to blind us, you know, to kind of even when we can see things, we can't see things. It's this it's this kind of um, obfuscation of 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 really it's it's almost like a kind of a crime in a way of erasure. You know? I found I, I just wanted to I just as you were saying that I wanted to let you know and unfortunately I still had it open in my browser. <laughs> I I did in my in my research find um, a literary journal called Apt it seems to be um, uh, aforementionedproductions.com. And um, there was a piece that was there and it's very, very short. And it's, it's sort of a, it's written in um, a, a kind of a continuation of the story type style. And it's just entitled, I like to imagine Daisy from Mrs. Dalloway as an Indian woman. And the author is SJ Sindhu. And as I read that, I I had this moment of I don't I don't know if this is something that is more widely recognised or if um, you know I, I I hadn't engaged enough with the text of Mrs. Dalloway to understand what other people's readings were. 
But sorry, when you mentioned that, I thought I'd just share that I'd found that in my in my research. Oh, that's so interesting. I'd like love to read that. Um, I'll I'll, um, I'll send it through to you. I'll send it through afterwards. It's cool. it's it's really short. It's about six paragraphs. Um, yeah. Of just you know, sort of describing um, an imagined uh, element of the story. Um, yeah, sorry. Would you, <laughs> would you mind terribly, Michelle? I'm going to take not not an about face, but um, uh, sort of segue us into just um, a quick question about Sydney Writers Festival and your appearance. That would be awesome. Thank you, Andrew. Here we go. I'm just going to bring my notes back up, get us in the right spot. I am speaking with Michelle Carl. We are discussing Daisy and Wolf, and Michelle is going to be joining the lineup at Sydney Writers Festival. It's just such an incredible lineup, Michelle, and really excited that on the 20th of May, you'll be in conversation joined by Yumna Kassab and Felicity Castagna. Just two incredible writers. Daisy and Wolf, as we have discussed, is it, it blew me away. What are you looking forward to from this conversation? Oh, it's just going to be really, really awesome to be at the Sydney Writers Festival and in conversation with Yumna and Felicity, two authors I so, so admire. And, um, yeah, like it's going to be really awesome because Yumna's written a book about um, um, characters who are minoritised in the periphery and the margins also. And I just think it's going to, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. So that's on May the 20th at the Sydney Writers Festival at 2pm and I hope that you guys can come along if you're listening in. Please come along. I would love to see you there and, and um, yeah, that's going to be awesome. It strikes me it's going to be just such an incredible conversation that will touch on areas that you and I have been talking about. You're also doing a workshop, Restoried, writing historical fiction and, I mean, I, I feel like anyone who who has that sort of feeling that there is a historical fiction story in them would be wanting to, to check that out. And for details about everything Michelle is going to be appearing at, you can go to swf.org.au. Michelle, I'm just going to give us a bit of an outro now. Cool. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was so awesome to talk to you. Oh, pleasure. Let me just record. I'll just do um like a sort of a radio sort of... <laughs> I am speaking with Michelle Carl. Her new novel, Daisy and Wolf, is an absolute sensation. It just blew my reader's brain away. I so rarely take so much pleasure um, engaging with just the act of reading. Michelle, it's been terrific. Thank you for indulging my questions and thank you for helping us explore Daisy and Wolf. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. That's it for this great conversation with Michelle Carl. Michelle's new book is Daisy and Wolf. It's out now from Hachette. Thank you so much to Michelle for being so generous with her time. Michelle is part of the Sydney Writers Festival lineup. If you are getting along to the festival, or more importantly, if you can't, you can discover many incredible Sydney Writers Festival writers in the Great Conversations podcast. Just search through the podcast in whatever podcast app you're listening to, or, you know, look us up online. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. Let me know what you're going to at the festival, how you're enjoying the books that we discuss. You'll find Final Draft. You can talk to me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe in your podcast app, it means a new Great Conversation every week, often more. 
including the Tuesday Book Club, including special bonus episodes. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Thanks for joining me and happy reading.